All right. So good. I, I, I'm just emotional today. Uh, uh, like that worship. Like, I just want to bring the band out here. Can we just sing that last song? Like, over and over and over. It's so good. But, um, but like, I, I, I get, I'm worried about it. So, at the other campuses, you can't see us, but right over here is Lindsay Boyko. She's eight and a half months pregnant, and there's a, a line in the song that goes, he'll, he'll bring that child out of you. And I'm just waiting for that note where she's, whoa, there it is. All right, so... Uh, Keep Lindsay in your prayers. I didn't say that last night, but uh, hey, uh, hey, uh, any Bronco fans here? We care. We care about lost and broken people, unless you're a Raiders fan, and then you're lost, and you're just gonna stay lost. But. Um, uh, hey, I, I, before we get into this, I got a couple announcements. Uh, several years ago, uh, the elders sat me down and said, hey, we know you have a heart to run after the hearts of men, father, husbands. And so they tasked me to, to, to start a side ministry alongside Flatirons here, uh, not just for Flatirons, but across the nation. And so I started this thing called The Herd, and we got about... 2,000, 3,000 guys across the world that are a part of this. And uh, last two weeks ago, we, we hosted our, our second uh, men's retreat up at Crooked Creek up in, in Winter Park. We had 460 men from 30 states and four countries. And here's the fun part. On Saturday night, 135 of them got baptized. That's just amazing. So we give it up for those, those men, all right? Um, it was just a moment. It was just, just a great... Great, great, great moment. So, and here's the other thing I want to talk about. So, we have an event coming up here in, in a few weeks for men. So, let me just talk to the men at all of our campuses. And I know we're streaming across the world right now. So, out there in space world, men, you listen, all right? So, so about 11 years ago, I had this idea. And, uh, and I had these ideas, and it drives my staff crazy. But this was a good one. And so, I, I, I came to stage, and I said, hey, hey, men, this is back in the Tim Tebow days, all right? I said, after the Bronco game on Sunday... An hour, whenever that game is over, I want to call all the men of our church to come here to the Lafayette campus, and we're just going to get all the men in the same room and go, what would it look like for us to run after Jesus? So with 24 hours notice, 4,000 men showed up here in this room. Were any of you men a part of that? Any part of that? And that started a movement in this church. This is where the thin red line comes from, and, uh, and it just like we, we care about all people, but we just really believe that if some men could get some stuff straightened out, a lot of the problems of women and children go away. There you go. Anyway, so, all right, so, so we have another event like that on, on September 27th. We're, we're hosting here in the Lafayette campus a, a men's integrity conference, all right? And it's about living our lives in integrity with ourselves, with God, with the people in our lives, sexual integrity, how to recover sexual integrity, how to recover from brokenness, whatever that is. And I want, I want to strongly encourage all the men of our church, uh, and I, I'm, here's what I mean by that. Young men, high school, uh, mature middle school maybe, uh, but you need to come with a leader or something like that with you, all the way through nursing home and, and we, we want to get all the men of our church to get in here, look around and go like, hey, I'm not alone. I'm running after, I'm running after Jesus too. Now, there's a, there's a cost to this, but I have an underwriter who says cost will not be the reason why anybody cannot come to this. So fill up your, your car, your truck, whatever on, on uh, September the 27th. There's a, there's a I don't know what that code thing is called, uh, but, but take a picture of that. It will take it to you. Go to the Flatirons website, go to jimbergen.com, whatever that is. We want to see 4,000 men in this room for, for three hours on September the 27th. Now, I know we have people listening across the world. A lot of churches listen to us across, across the country, all right? Here's what I'm going to ask you to do. Get on the website. We will stream this event to your church or to your small group or wherever that is for, for free. And then at the end of that, there's a six-week curriculum. You can become a part of that. You can join a small group uh, at all of our campuses. There's a thing called Men's Connect. You can become a part of that as well. So we really, really want to run after that. Uh, so all the men, I'm telling, I'm your pastor. You have to come. 
okay? And, and, and ladies, take a picture of that QR code because they're like, uh, I'll remember. They won't. They won't remember, okay? So let's jump into this, all right? I've been waiting for this for a long time. I wanna teach you from now through Christmas and then keep going after that, what, what God has been teaching me over the past several months. And, and several times over the last, like times I've been teaching up here, I keep saying, it's coming. It's, it's Coach Prime. We coming, we coming, we here, all right? But anyway, so, so today, any, any, any Buff fans in the house? Or? That's so fun, isn't it? It's just finally fun, you know, finally. But uh, now today, I gotta be honest with you, today is gonna be a lot of setup. We're gonna talk a lot about the Bible and then we'll open the Bible at the end. But, but I wanna make a, things, a few things very, very, very clear. I, I, as I've explained like where we're going as a church to different people, some, some of the people that I've told it to, including even people on my own staff, get this look of like panic on their faces. Like, is Flatirons becoming a different kind of church? Like, like, do we still care about people living in a lost and broken world? We, we care about people, except Raiders fans. We, we care about, about people. But the, the answer is that we care about lost and broken people as much, I, I'd say this, more than we ever have. As a matter of fact, more, the more I have unpacked what I wanna talk about today with you, I feel more sense of urgency to get the good news of Jesus out to as many people as possible than I've ever felt in my whole life. I'm fired up about this. So to be clear, right, if you're new to all this, if you're new to the whole idea of Jesus and God and church, all right, and you're just kind of checking it out, all right, please hear this. If you don't hear anything else I hear today, please hear this. This is the good news, ready? God loves you. He's not mad at you, he doesn't hate you, he wants you back in his life. He wants you to be a part of his family. He loves you so much that he, God, took on the flesh in the form of his son Jesus and he lived among us, he lived a perfect life. He taught us a better way to live with him in this life in his kingdom. He was crucified on a cross as pay, a sacrifice and a payment for your sin and my sin. He was buried in a tomb, but he rose again on the third day. He conquered death and he now sits at the right hand of God the Father. He sent his Holy Spirit to live in every believer, to guide us and to strengthen us, to conform us to be more kind, like the kind of person that Jesus is. And someday, hopefully very, very soon, Jesus will come back and we will reign with him. This is the gospel. If you put your faith and trust in Jesus and what he has done, what he offers to you, listen, okay? You don't have to have it all figured out. You just put as much trust. How much? I don't know. As much as you have, you are forgiven. You're saved permanently and you are adopted back into God's family. Here's the mission statement of my life, all right? I kind of put some words to it a couple years ago. It goes like this. The calling of my life is to remind men and women that what God says is true and possible for them is still true and possible for them no matter what they've done or what's been done to them. I believe that. It's, it's still true and possible for you, not because you do something to clean up your life or you do something to earn it or deserve it, but when you put your faith in Jesus, give your life to Jesus, follow Jesus, serve Jesus, Jesus makes impossible things become possible for you. I believe it. I'm betting my whole life on it. Now, anything else that you hear today, as weird as this is gonna sound, and someone's gonna sound weird, right? Listen, we'll never contradict what I just said. As a matter of fact, this journey that we're about to go on as a church will actually illustrate how important and needed Jesus is. So in case you have to leave early or you wonder what kind of church you wandered into today, here's, here it is in a nutshell. It has always been, it is right now, and it will always be all about Jesus. Welcome to Flatirons. We're about Jesus here, right? Second, second. One of my big goals, starting with this series and then moving on into the future, is I wanna blow up your boring, neutered, nice, doesn't have any strength, doesn't have any power, not really worth giving your life to version of Christianity that a lot of you have settled for. 
It's gone. We, we, can't, we can't do that anymore. My goal is that you never read your Bible again the same way. My, my goal is for you to see that there is a demonic specific scheme formed against you, your body, your sexuality, your marriage, your relationships, your, your children, and it has been going on since chapter three of the Bible. But I also want you to know that God has been at work before chapter three of the Bible to make sure that you have everything you need to experience life with God as he meant for you to live it. Again, all possible through Jesus. Now, time out. When I say stuff like that, like phrases like, there's a demonic specific scheme formed against you. A bunch of you have a bunch of different things go through your mind. Some of you, you know, I can tell in your faces, you kind of roll your eyes and go, oh, it's all that weird mumbo jumbo spiritual stuff. Some of you though, you know, you hear the word demons and you're like, let's go. Like I've been waiting for this my whole life. You're ready to warrior up and go on some zombie apocalypse battle. Like let's go, right, right, right. But for most of us, when I say stuff like de demonic or whatever that, it just makes us nervous. It just makes us feel uneasy, like, I don't wanna think about that stuff. I have enough stuff going on in my life to put, and watch out for demons, on the list of stuff I have to worry about. Can't we just talk about happy stuff? Like, loving, no matter what you do, he'll forgive you, makes your day better, Jesus? Wait, are we talking about Jesus or your grandma, right? Because, listen, Jesus is not your, hey, can you kids be nicer to, to one another? Grandma. It's not him, right? He's king of the universe, right? And until you understand the demonic scheme that has locked you in death and condemnation that Jesus saved you from, you'll never, you'll never really understand what it means to call him your savior. And until you realize what Jesus was able to do in the past and is still able to do in your life today, you'll never trust him enough to call him Lord and King when your life gets hard. There's, so yeah, there's more to the story than just say a prayer and after you die, you go to heaven instead of hell and you'll feel better about yourself till you get there. It has to be more than that. You agree with me? Right, see, see that's the, there's a whole backstory that we're gonna look at that leads up to you being able to have a conversation with God that leads to him saving you. All that to say is this, is that my goal in this series is that you'll never read your Bible the same way again. My goal in this series is for you to recover what's been lost, to recover the supernatural worldview that the authors of the Bible and the very first readers of the Bible had when they wrote the Bible and when they read it for the first time. Here's what I want us to look at. What did they believe about God, about how the world or how the universe works? What did they believe about the spiritual world? How about this? Like, What did Jesus believe about what's really going on in the universe? Because here's my theology. Whatever Jesus believed is probably right. And I want to believe the same stuff Jesus believed. See, what we do, kind of from, from a, an enlightened, scientific, modern, rational mindset, combined with whatever religious thing you grew up in, like, well, as a Catholic, I believe this. As a Protestant, I believe this. As a Lutheran, I believe, I was, this is how I was raised, right? And here's what happens. And I was raised the same way. It filtered out anything weird or supernatural or skipped over it, or here's how I was raised. They just told me that didn't happen anymore. And when we do that, we miss out on the bigger, deeper, more mysterious story that's being told. I'll give you an example of this. Like, I get asked this all the time. So like, my, my problem with Jesus you know, is, hey, Jim, how can you resolve scientific discoveries with six days of creation? Write this down. I, I, ha I have no idea. I, I can't, all right? And I could distance myself from your question by saying, but if God is God, he could do it any way he wanted, which is true, but two, three, 4,000 years ago when the Bible was being written, there was no carbon dating. There, there was no Hubble telescope, you know, looking at gassy burning balls in the sky. There was no internet that they could get, had every scientific discovery at your fingertips. Now, let me be clear. God knows how it all works. 
God knows everything. And if God wanted to communicate that to them back then, he would have. But please hear this. The Bible was never meant to be looked at as a science book. The, the, the biggest question for the first authors and readers of the Bible was not, how did God do all this? No, it was, it was more like this. Can or, or is God able to bring order out of chaos? That's what the first two chapters of the Bible are about. Can God take just a mess and, and bring chaos to it? And the answer is yes. He can speak it. He can create it. And it's good. And here's the takeaway. He can still do that. He can bring order into the chaos of your life. So I, I, I've been studying this book over the last, all, all summer, and then I took two college courses on, on this, uh, by this guy named uh, Michael Heiser. He wrote a book called The Unseen Realm. I highly recommend it. And so as I'm reading through this, he gave me a quote. And the first time I read it, I thought, I don't know if I like that. But after thinking it through, it made a, a lot of sense. Look at this. It says this, all right? The Bible was written for us, but it wasn't written to us. It was written for us, for our benefit, but it wasn't written to us. The authors back there weren't thinking about you, right? The, 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 the authors, they wrote from an ancient two, three, four thousand year ago, Near Eastern cultural mindset and understanding of the world, and they wrote it to an audience with a very different cultural context than we have in the 21st century. And it would be wrong to take our world, our culture, and put it on them and explain them to explain how everything happened in our terms. It's not fair. What we have to do, and this is what we're gonna do in this whole series, is we have to take what they believed and bring it into our culture because the, whatever truth that they believed, whether it was conveyed through metaphor or story or typology, if it's true back then, it's still true today. Again, I like, I like how Heiser put it. He says, don't think of it as you read the Bible. You can't read it and go like, well, you can't take that literally. How, how about this, right? Rather than saying it's not literal, what if you could look at it as more than literal, as in when you're reading your Bible, there's more going on than what first jumps out when I read it. So that's what I wanna do today. I wanna look at this idea, kind of contrast between not literal versus more than literal. So I'm gonna take you on a little journey and we will open the Bible eventually, I promise. Okay, so, so if I was going to write something to you about God and you had no idea what I was talking about, I tried to write you a letter, like, like this is who God is and this is what he's like and, and where he lives and, and how a person would interact with God. What would I write? What would, where would I start? Or, or how about this? I, if I had everybody take out a piece of paper right now, don't, but just go with it, right? I want you to draw a picture of a supernatural, non-embodied, he doesn't have a body, omnipresent, meaning he's everywhere, but you can't point to a geographical spot and say he's right there. What would you draw? And here's what you do, a cloud. That's just, just this cloud, right? There's God, all right? So, so how, about, or how about this, all right? Um, you're dropped onto an island that has never heard of God or Jesus, and you're tasked with explaining to them who God is and what he has done through Jesus for us. Where would you start in this, in this culture that's never heard of Jesus, all right? And, and the answer is, this is gonna be really obvious, first, you'd learn their language, that's just logical, right? If you talk to any missionary, before they do go do anything, they learn the language. Like when they say this word, what do they mean? Not what does that word mean back here in America, that's irrelevant. What's going on in their minds when you present a, a certain word or a concept? You don't, don't do what I do when I go to a foreign country. You just don't yell English louder at them. <laughs> I, do, I do that to taxi drivers like, turn right! And they're like, I don't, anyway, sorry, right, but no, you, know, you have to get inside their minds, right? You have to get inside their culture, their, their context, and hopefully their, their, their culture will get inside your head. Oh, now I understand what they're talking about. 
The other thing, the next thing after you learn the language is you just look around for stuff like metaphors that they already take for granted and then connect to the story of God that you want to introduce them to. So you're, you're, you're trying to figure out how to talk about God to these people in the area. So what, what do you already have? You have a king. So God's kind of like a king. Oh, okay, we have a king, so that makes sense. Or he has a council around him, we're gonna look at that. Or he's like a mighty warrior, but he didn't ride on a horse or on a tank or something like that. Our, our God is so amazing, he rides on the clouds. God is described all through the Old Testament, the one who rides on the clouds. I'll, I'll give you an example of this, and, and this will all make sense in a minute, and this is all set up, okay? So when the first five books of the Bible were being written, Moses is giving credit for the content but he didn't write stuff down. It was passed on orally until it was written down years and years later. But when that happened, when the authors wrote it down, right, the, the, the authors and the audience lived in the part of the world where almost every culture shared some similar ideas. It's not just Israel I'm talking about. I'm talking the whole Middle Eastern world. For example, uh, you have, if you have Israel here, you have Mesopotamia up here. You have Assyria over here. You have Babylon over here. You have Greece over here. Pretty much the entire known world. Here's what they all believed, all right? They believed that gods lived in one of two places, either on, in lush gardens or on the top of mountains. If you just think about all the mythology, all the stories you've heard, gods live in gardens or on top of mountains, right? People back then, right, when the Bible was being written, they lived in an arid part of the world where life hinged on the presence or the absence of water. If there was water, then your crops and your livestock flourished and there was plenty to eat and drink, so we're alive. So if the gods are gonna live any place on the planet, it's not gonna be in a desert, it would be in like a garden-like paradise where there's plenty to eat and drink. They also believed, all right, this all makes sense in a minute, they believed that the gods lived on top of mountains. First of all, because then they would be above everybody and out of the reach of normal human beings. Here's a side note. People back then didn't climb mountains for fun. I know it's blowing Colorado's mind. Why not? Because they were busy staying alive. All right, so, so they lived up there. The second reason that the gods lived on mountains, they believed, was to stay like away from normal, annoying humans, all right? The Babylonians believed that their god El like flooded the earth because humans were too loud and obnoxious. So he's got a point. I've met some of you. Anyway, but, so now think about this. When the, when the author of, of Genesis, the first three chapters, right, is, is describing creation, and God wants to create a place where he can live with Adam and Eve, well, what is Eden? It's a garden. It's the Garden of Eden. But in the book of Ezekiel, we're going to look at, Eden is called God's holy mountain. So which is it? Is it a garden or a mountain? Yes. It's both. So when readers heard or read that God created man and woman and put them in a garden on a mountain, they would have thought, yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense because if God, what's his name, Yahweh, okay, if he was gonna live and meet with his people, he would do it in a garden or on a mountain. So yeah, Eden makes sense. Here's, this is not gonna sound important, but this is important, look at this. Eden, the place where God lives and meets with people, lives with his family. This is the theme of the Bible, and we've missed it. And we're gonna get to this in a few weeks, but eventually Adam and Eve get kicked out of the garden. So we skip ahead a, bit, a long way in the Bible. All right, the Jewish people have been in, uh, in slavery in Egypt, and then Moses comes and he rescues them. They cross the Red Sea. God's, God brings them to a mountain. It's called Mount Sinai. Calls Moses up on top of the mountain. Why? Because mountains are where God meets with people. He gives Moses the Ten Commandments, and then he says this, all right, I want you to build a tabernacle. It's, it's called the Tent of Meeting. This is the boring parts of the Bible. You're going, I don't even know why this is in there. It's so important, all right? 
right? And the Bible gives these intricate details, chapter after chapter, about how big it is. It's in the shape of, ready for this, a cube. And you say, that's not important. It's so important, all right? And we'll make sense in a minute, right? A cube, height, width, depth, all right? And, and then he tells them how to decorate it. And guess what the inside of the tent of meeting is decorated like? Eden. There's fruit trees. Um, that, the Jewish menorah with the seven you know, the candlesticks, that's the tree of life. There's a huge one in, in there, right? There's a big cistern full of water. It represents the rivers. There are pictures of animals. Why? Because gardens are where Yahweh meets with people. And Moses would go into the tent of meeting and he would meet with God. The book of Exodus says, as two friends talking face to face. How awesome would that be? Now skip ahead to the promised land, all right? Solomon, David's son, builds the temple and he builds it on a mountain in the middle of Jerusalem called Mount Zion and he puts the, the, the tent of meeting inside the, the temple and it's called the Holy of Holies and it's a perfect cube. And guess what the temple is decorated like? Like Eden, because Eden and gardens and mountains and now Eden representing temple is where God lives and meets with his people. A king called Nebuchadnezzar, he comes in, he tears it down. Later, Herod rebuilds another temple and decorates it like the Garden of Eden. This is the temple that existed when Jesus arrived. We're about to open the Bible, okay? One day, some, some, some religious people were, were demanding, Jesus, give us a sign that you really are from God. And look what Jesus says to them. He says, Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you're gonna raise it in three days? Here it is. But the temple he had spoken of was him. So now Jesus is the garden. Jesus is the mountain. Jesus is the temple because temples are where God lives with and meets with people through Jesus. Another time, yeah, there's a famous story where Jesus goes in the temple and, and, and he turns over all these tables and he runs people out because they're exploiting the, the poor. And, and on, on, on the way, Jesus curses a tree. It's supposed to look, it looks like it's supposed to have fruit, but it doesn't. And he's really calling out the religious system there. He curses it and it dies, all right? And now Jesus is walking away after turning over those temples, the, those tables, and, and the disciples are like, what are you doing? Why are you doing this, right? What's going on? Look at how Jesus answers. Jesus, Jesus replied, truly I tell you, if you have faith, in another place, faith the size of a mustard seed, you heard of that before, right? If you have just a little bit of faith and do not doubt, not only can you do what was done to the fig tree, but also you can say to, what's the next word? It's very specific. You can say to this mountain, go throw yourself in the sea and it will be done. I'm gonna pop some of your... Jesus bubbles here, all right? When Jesus referenced with faith, you can move mountains, he wasn't talking about, if you have faith, your mountain-sized problems will just get out of your way. I'm sure that applies. That's not what he's talking about. No, in this context, I believe he's just walked out of that temple and he says, if you have a little bit of faith, you can say to that one. He points to the temple and says, it's going away and it will be replaced by faith in me. I will be where God meets with you and where God lives with you. Later, Jesus says this, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I'm the temple. Skip ahead, Jesus launches his church. Now we're gonna talk about flat irons, right? And announces that, hey, church, now you are the temple. And you individual Christians, you are temples because temples are where God lives in you and meets with people. And God will meet with people through Jesus who lives in you. Skip ahead to the last two chapters of the Bible. By the way, the first two chapters of the Bible and the last two chapters of the Bible are the same chapters, it's the same description. The book of Revelation, it ends with a recreation of Eden from the first two chapters of, of the Bible. And John sees, ready for this, a holy city descending and its dimensions are a perfect cube. It's the city of God. It's just like the tent of meeting with, with Moses. And the setting is a garden and a mountain because God makes his dwelling with us. Please hear, this is how the story ends. We don't go to a Disney castle in outer space. 
God comes and lives and makes his dwelling with us right here in Eden, a newly created garden. And all of that made sense two or 3,000 years ago when people read it. Yeah, God created the heavens and the earth and planted a garden on a mountain so that he could live with us as a family. The Bible begins and ends with us living with God. But we Christians have missed it. We've explained it all the way, which leaves us asking, ready? Really stupid questions about God and heaven like, like this. Will my cat be in heaven? Because I don't know if I want to go to a heaven where my cat won't be there. That's an actual quote from this lobby. And I want to look back at this lady and go, are you freaking kidding me? That's your theology. If Fluffy's not there, I don't know if I want to go. All right, so, so my mom died this week. Um, I'm sad, but I'm relieved. So, all right, so, but I promise, here's what I tell you. I promise you that when she opened her eyes after taking her final breath here in this life, her first words were not, is my cat here? Her first words were not even, is my husband who passed away 11 years, can I see him? No, I know, I know my mom, and I promise, here's what came out of her mouth. I want to see Jesus. I want to see the one who loved me and died for me and saved me and has resurrected me into his glorious presence. And then she's going to break into those songs that we just get to sing about. She gets to see it. A week ago, she got to see Jesus face to face. I'm a little bit jealous. Now, here's why I tell you that, right? If you, if you believe anything that I've said today, then you believe in the supernatural. You just didn't think about it like that. If you believe, I don't know where you are, there's a higher power. How about this? If you believe there's a God who loves you, you believe in the supernatural because a God of love isn't a natural thing. He's outside of us. Why would he love us? If you believe that Jesus is God in the flesh, lived a perfect life, died on a cross as payment for sin, was buried and rose again on the third day, then you believe in the supernatural because none of that is natural. It's outside of what naturally happens in your life and in your experience. Nobody in your life has died for you and then come back to life. If it happened, it was a supernatural event. If you believe that Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father and has all authority has been given to him and that one day he will return, called the day of the Lord, to make all things new, then you believe you're holding on to the supernatural. If you believe in the supernatural, then you have to put all the other stuff on the table and go, well, then that's possible too, including the parts that, I, that make me nervous that I don't like to think about. Now just cherry pick the parts of the Bible that make you feel better about yourself and about your life and the choices that you have made in the past. See, the reason that Jesus decided to do any or, and all of what he has done for you is that there is a supernatural side of reality that's very different than Jesus. The way I've been articulating over the last several months is this, supernatural, and I would say demonic, this will explain our world very, very clearly, intelligent, intentional, organized, strategic evil has formed itself against you and delights in your destruction. Anybody feel that? The reason that Jesus saved you is because there is something to save you from. Evil wants to steal, kill, and destroy your soul, your life, your marriage, your family, your body, your joy, your salvation, your mental health, and see you separated from God for eternity. That's the plan against you. So we all, we all like to hear the loving, forgiving, grace-filled, hope-filled parts of the Bible where Jesus is our buddy. He's our Lord. He's our Savior. He's our friend, our brother who will never leave us or forsake us. All true, right? But in order to fully appreciate the links that Jesus has gone to and is willing to go to on your behalf, we also have to know the enemy so that we don't get lulled into thinking, it's fine, it's all peace, it's all safety, everything's gonna be well, right, right? No big deal. And then bam, we get ambushed and another part of our life is gone and destroyed. Has anybody been through that? I got ambushed, didn't see it coming. If, if I were to ask you, I'm talking so fast, man, all right, so if I were to ask you why there's evil in the world, 
Most Christians would point back to Genesis chapter three and the Garden of Eden and the serpent and Adam and Eve and we, call, we just call it the fall and that's why the world's all screwed up and you'd be right, partially. But if you were to ask the people back in Jesus' day why the world is bad and getting worse, they would point to the same thing, the rebellion of Satan and Adam and Eve, but they would point to two other rebellions as well. Ready for this? Does this make you want to come back or never come back? Here it is, all right? In Genesis 6, there's a story about the sons of God. The sons of God come to earth and have sex with the daughters of men and give birth to half demonic, half human offspring and put depravity on steroids. I never heard that sermon growing up. And then there's another rebellion, Genesis chapter 11, the Tower of Babel, resulting in God divorcing himself from all of the nations and turning them over to other lesser gods who go rogue quickly. And most of us have never heard about those second two rebellions. But the first century readers of the Bible not only believed it, they knew that when the Messiah showed up, he'd have to fix not just the Garden of Eden, but all the other stuff as well. And we're gonna see Jesus does it perfectly. Here's a good one, all right? I just discovered this as an aha moment about a month ago. What if I told you that all of those genealogies in the Bible that you skip over, somebody begat somebody, and they begat somebody, and they begat, then you had to look up, what's begat mean? All right, so... What if I told you this? They aren't just boring, empty family tree information, but they are a written record to prove that Jesus doesn't have any of those half-demon, half-human ancestors in his bloodline because you can't have a Messiah who's partially demonic. That's why that's in there. I have never heard any of this taught in church, and I've been going to church since the womb. Like, my mom is the organist. I mean, it's just, uh, there's Jimmy in there, right, right, right. And we're, listen, we're gonna look at all of that between now and Christmas. But here's the bigger question. Why? Why? Why don't we just look at the Jesus parts? Why, why, why go back and study creation? Why go back and study what it means to be created in the image of God? Why go back and study that serpent? Like, who is that serpent really? And what, what happened back there really? And what is he doing now? Like, why go back and unpack the idea that there's a group of non-human beings that the Bible, actually God calls them sons of God. Actually, God calls them sons of the Most High. And then how is Jesus, the son of God, different than them? And he is. Why does almost every writer in the Bible make reference to other gods besides Yahweh, yet most of us have never heard of any of them mentioned other than a reference to, well, back then they worshiped statues. Why has the church dismissed and ignored almost anything having to do with the evil supernatural world other than a reference to someone called the devil? That's it. When the Bible says there's lots of, there's lots of stuff going on out there. Gods, rulers, Princes, authorities, evil powers of darkness in the heavenly spiritual realms, and it parallels our world. Why study where the giants in the Old Testament came from? What happened to them? And are they coming back? I would like to know that. How about this? Where do demons come from? We're gonna look at it. And are they still around today? And do they have power over us? Or or, or are they no problem at all? Why study the flood or the Tower of Babel? What does that have to do with anything that you have to face Tuesday at work or school? And here's the reason. Because there's a long journey before, between the first two chapters of the Bible and the last two chapters of the Bible. And while we can all read the end and Jesus wins, the truth is we're not there yet. And between here and there, there's a journey, there's a battle, there's a war that's gonna be fought every day between now and then. And if we don't know what's going on, let alone how to do battle, we might go to heaven in the end, but between now and then, every day is just gonna feel like hell. Anybody have that day? Yeah, here's one more. It's gonna get more positive, I promise, okay? What, what if we dig into this book and we find out that words that we had always just skipped over or taken at face value mean more than we thought they did? 
For example, I love, I love our worship around here. I love it when we sing or, or hear phrases like, on Christ the solid rock I stand. I love that. This goes back to my childhood. Or Jesus is the rock of my salvation. Or build your life on the rock. But what if we find out, which we're going to find out, that when a first century person read or heard the word rock, they didn't think about a big boulder, a big rock. They would think mountain. And we just learned that Mountain is a place where God meets and lives with his family. So what if, let's get to the, to the Sermon on the Mount. What if when Jesus is closing out the Sermon on the Mount, this is what he meant? I'm gonna paraphrase it, but here it is, all right? The man who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who builds his house on the rock, the place where he and God meet and live together. And the rains fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house, but it didn't fall because his house, his life, was built on the place where he and God meet and live together every day. Isn't that beautiful? And we're gonna, we're gonna study the story of the Tower of Babel, which is a story of, of a, man, a, man, a, a, a man building a man-made mountain on a flat, sandy plain, and they didn't want God. They did it out of their own strength with the goal of, we wanna make a name for ourselves. and if God wants to meet with us, he can meet with us here on our terms. So Jesus continues that story. Look at this. But the man who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who builds his house on sand without God in his own strength and arrogance and demands that God comes to him on his own terms as if God works for him. Jesus warns that man's house will crash down hard when the rains, floods, and winds come and they will eventually, inevitably, they always come. Makes a little more sense, doesn't it? How many of us are building our, our lives on our own arrogance? This is my plan. And if God wants to be a part of it, he can get on my train. And that house will fall apart. So this is where we're going, all right? Next week, we're gonna look at, again, this is gonna blow some of your minds. We're gonna look at this reality that's it's right on the pages of our Bible, but we haven't seen it. We're gonna look at God already had a heavenly family, and he wanted a human family, and he wanted us all to live together with him. And in the last two chapters of the Bible, he gets his way. But I want to leave you with this. I didn't know how to land the plane this weekend. And so I, I was just studying through my Bible and this just popped at me, all right? We talked about this day of the Lord when Jesus is going to come back and it scares some of us and some of us are like, come quickly, please, hurry, right? I want to leave you with this because Paul's writing to some people, some Christians who live in a town called Thessalonica, all right? And they're about done. The world is dark and getting darker. They thought when Jesus was coming back, they thought like Thursday, like soon, like, don't buy green bananas. That, right? Like, come quickly, Jesus. And he's not coming. And they're like, well, I'm about to give up. So Paul writes this letter to him, and he says, now, I just think this is such a comfort. Listen, now, brothers and sisters, about times and dates, we don't need to write to you, for you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying, everything's fine, peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you, brothers and sisters, are not in darkness so that this day should surprise you like a thief. You are all children of the light and children of the day. We don't belong to the night or to the darkness. So then let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be awake and sober. Maybe this series needs to be called, hey, wake up, right? But for those who sleep, they sleep at night. And those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. I love this. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. And this part gets me. He died for us so that whether we are awake, like we're alive when he comes, or asleep, like my mom, we may live together with him. 
Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up, just as in fact you're doing. I just wanted to leave you with that. It's like, we don't have to be afraid, but we don't need to be naive. We need to be looking for him and living for him and bringing our lives into obedience for him. So when he comes back, well done. Come and live with me forever. So that's where we're going. We're gonna, we're, gonna, we're gonna go deep, okay? So if you have a phone with you, I want you to take a picture of this screen. Don't stare, I will stand here, I see phones, all right? Uh, I can look through the cameras at campuses too, all right? So here's what I want you to do, all right? You need to get a Bible, all right? Oh, are we that kind of church? Absolutely, okay? I have an ESV, ESV, uh, uh, English Standard Version, all right? You know, what, what, what version should you get? Here's the best version for you. Whichever one you'll read, does that make sense, all right? I wanna be out of the ESV. You can get on Amazon. We have free ESVs in the back of all of our auditoriums at all of our campuses, all right? Here's what I want you to start doing, all right? From now through Christmas. Just start reading through Genesis chapter one through 12. That's where we're gonna be all fall. Read it, then read it again, read it again, all right? I want you to write down any questions and then submit them to me on the website. All right, um, so I'm reading something that doesn't make sense, or I have a question like, who's that talking about, or how can that happen, blah, blah, blah. So I will work as many of those questions into my weekend message, but I can't get all of them, um, and I won't answer any questions about cats. Do not email me about cats. I will mock you openly. I have a platform, all right? So, all right. <laughs> you know what I wanted to say to that lady? Your cat might go to heaven. I'm not sure about you. That's what I wanted to say, <laughs> but that's very judgmental, and we all know cats won't be in heaven, all right? So, here, here's another one, all right? Um, don't, don't miss. I'm gonna hammer this, all right? Church culture today has put up a white flag and says, we're, we're great if somebody comes two out of four weeks. We're not that church. We're gonna go deep, all right? And we're gonna cover so much content. He's going, if I, if I, when you miss, I don't have time to review everything we've done like I've done in the past. We're gonna pick up and we're gonna keep on going. So if you have to miss, all right, you can watch online, but only if physically you can't, can't be here, okay? That's, that's the deal we're making. We're gonna go. We're gonna go deep and we're gonna go fast, all right? The next one is this. Bring a friend. We have a goal, we set a goal uh, about a month ago that we began praying that God would bring somebody into our life that, that we would have the opportunity to, to lead to Christ, share our story, and baptize them in the next year. What an honor that would be. And people have shown me, they wrote it in their Bible, they just showed me their cards, things like that, all right? People are not our targets, they're not our projects. They're people that God loves. And because we love them and God loves them, we wanna be in eternity with them. We want them to experience joy and grace like a lot of us have, have, have experienced, all right? This is really important. On November the 11th and 12th, that's baptism weekend. I'm gonna preach the same sermon as the men's retreat that a third of the camp got baptized. So bring a towel. That's all I'm, I'm saying. Evangelism is the ultimate weapon of spiritual warfare. It's not smacking people on the head or holding up crosses or you know, throwing your Bible at people and so that doesn't do any good, all right? But when a person comes to Christ, Satan loses territory and it hastens the return of Christ. And so that's our mission, all right? I hope you come back. Um, if not, you're gonna miss out on a lot because th this is where we're, we're going. Let's stand up at all of our campuses, all right? And I'm gonna pray, and then um, we're gonna sing a song that I won't be able to sing because um, it just describes everything my mom is experiencing. Anybody have loss in their life? You hang on to this, all right? He's above it all. He reigns above everything. He's got everything in control. I miss my mom. I'm, really, I'm, I'm obviously really sad. But I wouldn't ask her to come back for anything. 
my mom was always uh, saying alto, very loud. She was that lady in the aisle next to you going, whoa, all right, all right. And, but these, these last couple of years, she could barely talk. And she's been healed. And the person you miss has been healed. They're fine. And they're good. And they're waiting on you. I'm gonna shut up and pray. God, there's a lot of us carrying really heavy stuff, um, really broken stuff, really sad stuff, stuff that just feels, it's just unbearable. I don't, I don't know if I can do this. But will you just remind us that you're over everything and you are right here with us and you will never leave us and forsake us because the world is really, it feels like it's against us. But we're gonna be okay because you're our Lord and you're our savior and you're our friend and you're our brother and you're our, you're our king. And that's why we worship you. And that's why we love you. And that's why we desperately need you. So Lord, we're about to go on a journey. We wanna know you more. And your son, Jesus Christ, whom he has sent, that's eternal life. And I have a feeling that we'll never be the same in a good way. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.